Athletic. Hello, thank you for joining us. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. My name is Mark Carey, filling in for Ali Maxwell for the second time. And for the second time, we're going to be opening up the World Cup notebook, reflecting on all the observations from the second round of group game fixtures. And to help me to do that, we have Michael Cox. Um, Michael, I checked, and you have 12 pieces out on site since the start of the tournament. So my main question is, are you getting enough sleep? That's funny because I've done 12 matches as well, but I, it hasn't been a piece per match, but I'm, I'm pleased that it's uh, tallied up correctly. Yeah, it, it's not too bad. I think, um, you know, now there's only two kickoff slots for the next few days. I think there'll be a little bit more rest. But yeah, it's been really good. I, I've, I've really enjoyed the last few days, actually. It's maybe the point where you start to flag, but there's been some fantastic games. Uh, the Ghana game yesterday, which I missed, actually, but I was at Cameroon against Serbia. Um yeah, there's been a good variety of games as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, we're going to get through quite a lot of them. Um, and joining Michael is uh, what I'm calling the fortune teller, <laughs> Liam Tharm. Um, why is that? Well, I'm going to pull up a tweet Liam put out at the start of the Australia-Tunisia game on Saturday, which reads, if anyone wants to make any lump money on Mitchell Duke scoring a header, it's the only way I see a goal in this game. The final score was 1-0, goal scorer, Mitchell Duke with a glancing header. So Liam, I'm going to say that you swap football for a crystal ball. <laughs> How are you, mate? Um, I'm well, thank you. Uh, sadly, no riches. I didn't actually put any money on it myself, so maybe I should have taken my, my own advice there. But no, that was um, yeah a, a lovely goal. And uh, I know we'll come on and touch on it, but good to see Australia winning at a World Cup again. Very true. So we're going to, as I say, dive into chapter two uh, of our notebook. And as is often the case, we're not going to go through every single game. Uh, we're going to look at some, some patterns. Um, we spoke last Friday the morning of the the England-USA game. And later that day, we saw our fifth nil-nil of the tournament, goalless between uh, the two. Uh, Michael, I went back into your pre-tournament piece on how to win the World Cup. And lesson number one was you don't need to impress in the group stage. Granted, England did impress in their first game against Iran, but I think it's fair to say they were a lot flatter uh, against the US. But overall, is there a bit of pragmatism required here for for England fans in terms of the, I guess, the wider picture of the tournament? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I thought this, the, the interesting thing here from England's perspective, I don't think it was about tactics. I think it was about strategy in the sense that they were clearly entirely content with the nil-nil. Um, and you can see that by the fact that Southgate, despite possessing arguably as many op uh, attacking options as anyone in the tournament, didn't make any substitutions for 67 minutes, I think, despite that the despite the fact the US were increasingly um, building pressure, I felt. But I think actually there were a couple of... It kind of started out as, as a lack of ambition to win the game, but I thought at times it was England playing quite badly and conceding quite a lot of pressure. Um, and I thought England uh, dominated their own penalty box really well. Maguire in particular had a good game. But um, I did think it was a little bit concerning. I mean, we've spoken a few times before in this podcast about the fact that I think England's biggest failing is the fact that when the opposition change their shape or bring on a substitute, Southgate can't really react very well. And I felt the only change here was that the change of shape actually came from the start rather than midway through the second half because the US played 4-4-2 really rather than 4-3-3. And it felt to me like England were quite flummoxed by that. And there were a few times, particularly down England's left, where the US just seemed to get a man over really easily as if England didn't really know how to 
react to that. So, yeah, a point's not a bad result, but I did think the the performance there were some concerning signs there for me. And well, the same with that, Michael. How much do you yeah give credit to? the US because as you say with Weston McKenney's role kind of more towards the right hand side it was essentially a, a right midfielder wasn't he pulled almost looking at his average position map it was wider than uh, Tim Weir uh, across the whole course of the game so how much credit do you give to to the US Tyler Adams controlling the midfield and protecting the defence really well how much do you give it as much credit to the US as, as obviously England yeah I thought they played really well I mean and I think they learned from the first game to a certain extent where I felt against Wales, they, they came out the traps really quickly and tied quite badly in the second half. But no, they're excellent. I mean, the only criticism you can have of them is they didn't create enough chances. And even though they got the ball into the box a lot, they, they didn't really have the, the aerial power to, to cause England problems. But in terms of what they did in, in midfield, in terms of the pressing, in terms of um, the way that they used the ball, I thought they were excellent. I thought Adams in particular in front of the defence was fantastic. Musa had a really good first game as well as um, as well as doing well here and McKenney, yeah, I think positionally caused England problems and the fullbacks were getting forward as well and and not really looking that vulnerable defensively. So yeah, I, I think overall you have to give a lot of credit to the US. They'll just be, I think, quite frustrated that you know they haven't won either of those two games. You know, the, the, from the level of performance, um, particularly in the first half against Wales and then for most of the game it's Engl- against England, yeah, it shouldn't shouldn't be on only two points really. Yeah, and arguably should have done better with that big chance that they they had, should have at least got it on target. But you touched upon Maguire there. Liam, Gareth Southgate said after the game that he thought England actually controlled the game really well. He said that two centre-backs were absolutely outstanding on the ball, uh, was the phrase that he used. Uh, You reflected upon the Maguire-Stones partnership for England. Um, Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's a real staple really for England over the past few major tournaments. Um, and I think it's probably more important than maybe we've given it credit for. I think we've become very accustomed to it. Um, ultimately, with a lack of preparation time, I think is a, is a big part here that you need to have sort of stable partnerships that you can fall back on and rely on. I know that Stones wasn't really the question mark. People maybe thought Maguire's position was untenable. I think he's shown once again at a major tournament, you know, how good he is, uh, how high quality he's been, which is arguably even more impressive given um, what's been going on for him at Manchester United and, and the lack of football really um, but I thought they showed really the the balance that you want between two central defenders so you had Stones repeatedly breaking lines I think the FIFA stats had him well in the 30s for line breaks um, and if you look through England sort of chances they did create down the right it was very often Stones playing that um, line break through a really good compact um, US shape and they were matching in numerically so they had to pick some really good passes uh, into Saka or into Bellingham uh, and then Maguire had a really good period um, I think at the start of the second half or midway through where he basically just had a, a load of heading practice from USA's corners um, I'd never seen England so so man for man at set pieces uh, and I think it was him and Kane with the only zonal markers and Maguire on the edge of the six-yard box, just booming headers, uh, everything clear. So I I think Southgate's right in that regard. Um, I see how he's probably upset a few people where he seemed, with his post-match comments, happier at a 0-0 draw than he did a 6-2 win when he sort of spoke about, uh, he said he was fed up that England had had conceded too late on against Iran. Um, But I I think that's a really important thing to, to build on and go forward. As Michael touched on in, in his piece on how to win the World Cup, uh, 17 out of 24 clean sheets in knockout games um, for the past six World Cup winners. Um, so, you know, I think England can take, you know, both parts from this game that um, to keep a clean sheet and to defend well, as they did, they shouldn't have really needed to defend as well. They wouldn't have wanted to, but it was definitely a good performance um, on that regard. And the result then was the issue, not perhaps the defensive performance. Yeah, very interesting. And sticking with the the English defensive line just for now, obviously they're playing Wales uh, later today, as we record. Um, 
Would there be any inclination, Michael, to maybe move to a back three, thinking about maybe overloading the the wide areas if Wales are to play with a back three, back five, keeping the the wing, if it were to be England wing backs, really high and keeping a front five almost, and just locking down the defence, maybe with Kyle Walker getting some minutes, and we know how much his pace is so good, it's a bit of a cheat code in terms of that recovery pace. Is there any inclination to change it? It's a good question. Um, I think it could happen. I suppose for three reasons. One, because I don't think it has to be more of a defensive shape if you if you play a back three or, or a back five, but I think in England's case, it generally is. And I think, again, Southgate probably wouldn't be that unhappy with the draw. Second, because of the, the system that Wales use in the back three, I think you could match up. Southgate could, could look to match up there and not get kind of overloaded down the flanks. And third, because I think he will want to use it in the knockout stage, assuming England get there. And maybe this could be a bit of a practice game. Um, you know, not not a, I don't mean that in a patronising way towards Wales, but England haven't had pre-tournament friendlies, and therefore, to a certain extent, I think you might want to just train them in the use of that shape. So yeah, I, th- I think it could happen actually. I think the central midfield is a really interesting area. Having watched the Iran Wales game, um, they looked really porous in central midfield. Wales, it's something I picked up on watching them in their World Cup playoff games when I sort of did the tactical previews that. Even with Joe Allen there, they generally play a double pivot um, and it just doesn't offer them a lot of coverage. Often when teams are the three or four-man midfield, they massively get overloaded. Uh, and that second half was just wave after wave of Iran attack. There's a, a great clip at one point of uh, Ethan Ampadu um, struggling to defend a transition and he ends up falling over himself, I think, and, and going absolutely flying. So I, if anything, I think maybe Southgate would have opted for the midfield that he's gone for in the first two games. This is probably definitely the game for it. Um, when you've got the likes of Bellingham in particular that can um, play in those sort of advanced areas I was surprised that he went unchanged actually for the USA game I thought it was a much more dynamic midfield and England really struggled there and and probably lost the game there if if we're deadly honest Um, and that was the first time he'd gone unchanged since the 2018 World Cup semi-final which I think is is really quite telling so he's he's already spoken about you know saying he's not going to hand out caps and stuff for for this game but I think tactically um, this midfield if anything may be a question mark over Mount but um, is definitely the sort of midfield in terms of being dynamic and overloading and having ball progression in there. Yeah, well, we will see whether there are any changes to be made. And I want to stick on the topic of changes, uh, whether that is between or within games. It's a, a pattern that both of you have noted throughout this tournament. Um, obviously, it's a tournament unlike previous years where you have the, the wider 26-man squad to select, first and foremost, and the opportunity to make five substitutions within the game. So obviously, plenty of scope for change. Uh, and Michael, you noted an interesting predicament among some countries on who to select as their starting centre forward. I thought it was a great piece. Yeah, thanks. I was at the um, the Denmark game against France and I was amused by the fact that they used three strikers in that game. They started with Cornelius, who I suppose is the most traditional number nine. Then they brought on Martin Braithwaite, who's more of a winger around the channels. And then they moved Braithwaite out wide and they brought in Casper uh, Dahlberg, who'd started their first game and they're all quite different in style I think it's quite easy to categorise them as completely different forwards and it seems to happen a lot in international tournaments you have a settled side and it seems like you know centre forward is the area where managers look to change things either in terms of style or partly as well because you know they don't have a real solid world class option up front and I just I really like that kind of vibe in tournaments where managers are trying to find 
the best option up front. And um, yeah, we've seen a few changes. I mean, the US, I think, probably surprised England with um, uh, bringing Hadji Wright up front. I think that was a, a different option. I mean, uh, Senegal um, moved from, from playing one up front to two up front, may, maybe the most dramatic change. Um, and there's been a, a few in the last couple of days since I wrote that piece as well. So it does feel like there's not that many settled 11s uh, at the moment, which tends to happen in the group stage. You look even at the sides who won the tournament uh, in the past five or, or six editions, and they very rarely have a, a settled squad throughout the group stage. Usually the manager's experimenting and it kind of falls into place in the second round or the quarterfinal. So maybe we're seeing that again. I suppose it does depend on, on the opposition, as you say. And I want to get both of your thoughts on this as to whether there's a trade-off between, I guess, defensive protection and attacking contribution when selecting your number nine. I think the most salient example was uh, the Spain-Germany game recently. And I saw an interesting point made by John McKenzie uh, at TIFO uh, saying that the introduction of Morata was, while he added attacking threat, what Spain lost was the ability to sort of press from the front and Germany were more readily able to to build out from the back. Um, Liam, where do you sort of stand on on that trade-off? Is that sort of a fair assessment of, of the rotation in the number nine? Yeah, I think so. It's probably a reflection as well of how most of the first halves have gone, or maybe first 60 minutes, where lots of teams generally look set up to defend more in a block. Um, first halves have been quite cagey, very organised, not a high volume of chances. I'm not specifically sure on the numbers, but I believe at least of yesterday or the day before, it was still the lowest scoring or lowest shots, I believe, at a World Cup. Um, so I, I think that is then why teams are changing. And I think there's a lot of really good strength in depth um, with number nines as well. There's a lot of real good attacking quality. Um, you look at Cameroon, for instance, um, didn't start Vincent Abubakar despite being the top scorer um, at AFCON. So that was a surprise. And to see him come off the bench and change the game, they went to more of a, a 4-2-4 or a 4-4-2 um, rather than the 4-3-3 they were initially playing. Um, so I think it then does open the game up um, for both teams a lot more, which is then going to have the knock-on effect of any substitutes that the other team makes are also going to benefit because it's not necessarily more transitional, but um, I think you've got fewer conservative players there. I guess if you've got fresher players, they want to more attacking, they're coming on to change again, they're not necessarily coming on just to um, be more defensive. And I think it's it's making for really exciting games. It's definitely a big reason why we're getting so many goals uh, in the final stages of matches. Yeah, well, I mean, we spoke about last week about the the changes that Japan made in their, in their victory over Germany and Obviously, there's the introduction of Kiefer Moore for Wales and how that kind of changed the game. The, the more examples, probably more like for like. I think Japan was probably one of the few occasions where it was more of a system change. Um, and yeah, in the round two of games, we spoke about Morata and Nicholas Fulkrug coming on and, and doing well as well. Um, Liam, I know that you looked into the numbers a little bit on the, yeah, the impact that substitutes are making with just how many actual goal contributions are actually affecting the game. Mm. Yeah, there's a piece coming out later on today, or it might well be live as, as people listen to this. Um, but sort of going through the numbers, it, it was interesting. Over 35% of goals so far at this tournament um, have had a substitute either scoring or assisting them. So I know that's quite rudimentary, just going off of goals and assists and not necessarily considering the indirect impact, but to avoid writing an entire thesis on it, um, I thought I'd, I'd start with that there. And it was sort of goal numbers that were only really comparable to the 2014 tournament, um, where there was a record-breaking number of goals by substitutes and again Joachim Lowe um, after the final of course when Goethe scored as a sub the only sub to ever score a match winning goal he pointed out the climate there and was saying that you just can't play a game with um, you know then you're starting 11 and I think 
I'd be interested really to get Michael's um, take on this as someone that's out there and what the climate's like, particularly in those early games um, where we saw a lot lot cagier to start with um, and then the impact of subs. Again, Abubakar was in the early game when he came on. Um, just what is the climate like and yeah, how will subs have an impact there? Yeah, I think the early games, you're right. It's it's funny because the stadiums are air-conditioned, as, as everyone knows, but I just think being in direct sun is still probably really quite tiring. I don't think it's just about the... The temperature, it changes so much when you're in the sunlight. So, yeah, it has been quite slow to get going. Um, and even beyond the temperature, they are just quite, I don't know, they just feel quite early. It's almost like the equivalent of a Saturday 12.30 game. They always feel a little bit slow to get going. Maybe it's just my imagination. But, yeah, the, that does seem to have been a factor. Still full of running and he's... This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Michael, I want to talk about the, we've had some shocks, we've had some underdog victories. Uh, you wrote this week about how it's good to have shocks in tournament football, of course, but ultimately you do still want the big hitters in the knockout say, stages and it makes for more of an entertaining spectacle in those latter stages. I also looked at the, the comment section of that piece <laughs> and there was quite a lot to digest there as well. But um, again, I thought that was a really interesting piece. Do you want to just talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, we all love shocks. I mean, I think the, the Saudi Arabia result um, and the Japan game against Germany will go down as two of the most memorable scorelines from, from this competition. But I, I must say, much as it is lovely to have underdog stories, I, when you look back at past World Cups, I don't think there's that many examples of underdogs who've surprisingly progressed through to the knockout stage and then contributed to good games later on. I think what tends to happen really is... Um, you get them playing quite defensively in the knockout stages. And personally speaking, I think the the kind of standout memories from the World Cup tend to be when kind of the expected favourites do play each other in the knockout stages. So I think a good uh, comparison is 2002 versus 2006. 2002, loads of underdogs went through. The group stage was fantastic. I personally found the knockout stage really underwhelming. Whereas 2006, I don't think many people could name many things that happened in that group stage, but the knockout stage was fantastic. So I think as with everything, you've got to find a balance. You don't want, you know, complete predictable results in the group stage. Um, but I must say, I found myself, you know, wanting Argentina to go through. I, I don't... I don't want Messi to go out in the group stage. I want him to go through some knockout stage and contribute to some really uh, good games. So, um, yeah, some people didn't agree. A lot of moaning about the Super League in the in the comment section. I mean, I'm not suggesting you don't have the the underdogs in the competition. I mean, next time around, we're going to have loads of them. We're going to have 48 teams. But, yeah, I think the, the best games tend to happen when you get the, the good sides against each other. I mean, yeah, I, I do agree. You want to see, obviously, the best players on show. Um, and that neatly brings me on to the next part, to to think about one of the best players in the world, Neymar. Um, obviously, playing for Brazil or not playing for Brazil, as is the case at the moment, because he's injured out with a, an ankle injury for at least the next game of the group stage. Um, 
Brazil were 1-0 winners against Switzerland uh, yesterday as we record but had to wait until the 83rd minute to get the goal um, wasn't from one of their uh, main attackers but it was a striker's finish from Casemiro I think we'll all agree um, the obvious narrative surrounding Brazil is the the absence of Neymar um, the question I guess is how do they fill the void um, John Muller wrote about, about this recently predicting that they would maybe move to a 4-3-3 which they did yesterday bringing Fred and had a bit more sort of Midfield solidity and uh, Lucas Pakatar could sort of kick on. Um, Liam, do you think that the the change to a four three three was the the right one here against Switzerland? Obviously, they've got such a massive stable uh, of attackers who could mm. come in, but maybe no one who can quite fit that profile to replace Neymar. Obviously, yeah, they've been interesting to watch Brazil. Um, even with sort of Neymar in the first game, they they look very composed when they play. They don't look like a team that's rushing to score goals. Um, they're very content to still build up in an organised fashion um, taking their time to really you know play through teams I think they grind teams down a lot they remind me of, of City a lot in that regard um, you know the, the not necessarily just killing a team through loads of passes but they'll keep attacking you and keep attacking you and eventually you're going to break down so uh, I think they've not really got a like for like replacement with, with Neymar but as John sort of alluded to with um the moneyball stuff in his piece, maybe that's then not the way to go about it if you've not got the player to directly replace him. I think a big point is that, and the best compliment I can give Brazil, is they look less reliant on Neymar now than ever really before in sort of the past few years. Um, they scored 40 goals, I think it was, in South American qualifying, which was 30 more than second place Argentina. But Neymar only had eight of those goals. He did have eight assists, but you know, to only score one fifth of your team's goals is is good because then they're not hugely reliant on you. They've got really good wingers on either side. I think Vinicius Junior um, and Rafinha in particular are probably two of the best one v one players in the world. Um, and combining in a really nice way as well, I think he probably should have opened the scoring Vinicius Junior with that. I don't even know if cross is the right word, but that really incisive pass from uh, Rafinha when he's quite deep um, is a real trademark gun that he plays for Brazil. So I think anything that can maximise those wingers playing in those high and wide positions, um, getting their number nine running through, obviously a great part about Neymar was that he'd have to be making those runs beyond the defence. Uh, and I think against a really strong defence, uh, like Switzerland in particular, having that added midfield player and um, presumably to you know help build up more play through the lines but also to add some sort of cover uh, in defensive transition I think was was really important so I wouldn't be surprised to see them stick with that I think it's a it's a sensible alternative yeah I think they had a, a record-breaking points tally in qualifying as well so it shows just how strong they've been in the past you know 18 months two years um Michael what have you made of Brazil so far obviously you're out there I believe you've seen them live at least once um, as we mentioned there there's the obvious narrative of their ridiculous attacking talent but as Liam alluded to they have far more strength and there's a lot of kind of rest defence their defensive side of the game has been really strong I don't believe they've conceded a shot on target so far across the two games have they just not been tested all that much or are you seeing sort of similar good defensive structure as well as obviously good attacking threat yeah, I mean, I, I think defensively they're really strong. I mean, Brazil always tend to bring in an extra holding midfielder. They certainly did it in 2002 when they brought Cleberson in for uh, Juninho. They did it in 2006 as well when everyone made a lot of their front four and then by the quarterfinal, actually, it wasn't a front four. They brought in, I can't remember who it was now. Was it the other Juninho? can't remember, but they went to 4-3-3 and this was enforced because of Neymar's um, injury. But yeah, I think they do tend to make a defensive shift at some point in the competition. And I agree completely with Liam. I mean, they're just less reliant on Neymar 
And that is a good thing because we saw what happened, for example, in very dramatic circumstances in, in 2014 um, when they lost him and collapsed, not just in a kind of tactical, technical sense, but I think psychologically as well, um, as you know, th that 7-1 speaks for itself. So I think they're in a really good position, Brazil. I think there's a couple of positions where they're not overwhelmingly strong in. I mean, Militao at right back is um, a compromise and um, I don't think Neymar will, will kind of disturb anything when he comes back I, I just think he has absolutely the the right level of influence and the right role in the side um considering he is you know their best player by, by quite a long way yeah and for anyone who's seen the the images of his ankle it looks a pretty nasty sprain so to to think that he could come back in any time soon might be a little bit optimistic so be interesting to see how that one unfolds uh in the coming days uh so we're going to move on to some more general patterns that we've spotted. Uh, Liam, you wrote a very interesting piece looking at the, the asymmetry of some of uh, the nation's use of fullbacks in attack. Uh, it started brilliantly with a, an analogy taken from the Netherlands head coach, Louis van Gaal, of his wide defenders operating like a steering wheel. Uh, could you explain that one to us? Yeah, he's great for an analogy. I think he's he's fantastic just to just to hear him speak. It's just on the premise really that as one goes up um, on one side, that the other has to stay back, meaning that you keep turning the steering wheel so that they need to be moving up and down in sort of a in an opposing fashion. And the interesting thing is that I've seen quite a few teams, not always for a full game. Sometimes it's at periods, but um, seeming to be quite dominant on one side. Um, and weirdly, it seems to be the left hand side as well for um, a lot of teams, which I'd love to put down to left foot as being inherently better. But I think. A lot of teams just have a stronger left back. Um, we saw it with France in particular when um, Theo Hernandez came on for his brother Lucas, a more attack-minded player compared to obviously Pavard on the right side. Um, and I think it helps when you look at the left winger as well on a lot of teams. So Mbappe, a right footer, playing off the left, someone that wants to drift inside, playing those half spaces, or sort of go one v one. Not only will he then make space, but he benefits from having an overlapper. Um, Spain have been the same at times as well. We saw it in the build-up to uh, their goal against Germany and also for a couple of their early goals against Costa Rica um, with Jordi Alba playing high and wide on the left, Azpilicueta maybe tucking around a bit more and having, I think it was Dani Olmo um, against Germany sort of in that um, in that pocket in the half space. And it's something that the US use as well with Anthony Robinson. Um, and it's just been interesting to see teams sort of funnel their attack one way. Um, obviously having massively um, for Germany as well against Japan. Um, and I've seen teams then when they had to do it against the back five tend to struggle a lot more because it lets you get that extra player on the last line of defence often to make a front five then you get that overload and can get uh, around the side of teams. Yeah, very interesting. Ever since I read that piece I've now, every game I watch I do see it far more clearly. Uh, so it was a really good observation um, and a really good piece which I encourage people to read if they haven't already. I mean one thing I want to touch upon as well is the, the timing of the kickoffs. We spoke about it before but I wanted to interject but I thought I'd wait, bide my time that the anomaly of the early kickoff was the Cameroon-Serbia game uh, yesterday as we record, 3-3. Um, and it, the amount of goals made up 43% of the early kickoffs of the, the tournament so far. So obviously the small sample klaxon is sounding quite loudly, um, but I just, thought, I just thought that was quite a good little quirk. Um, but sticking with the, the note of Cameroon, it's worth touching upon their current goalkeeper situation. Uh, Andre Nana sent home after a fallout with the coaching staff. for one, He wanted to keep his goal kicks shorter, um, and he was instructed by the coaching staff and Rigobert Song, the manager, to go longer. Um, Michael, what have you made of this situation? It seems quite a strange one. Yeah, it's strange. And I think there's probably more to it than meets the eye. I just can't believe that 
this tactical debate would result in Anana just not being involved yesterday. I suspect there are some maybe personal, sometimes political, uh, you know, reasons why why teams fall out at, at the World Cup. But yeah, I mean, if you take it at face value, I kind of get why it might have been an issue because you look at the the way that Cameroon's fullbacks were passing yesterday; they're just not very good on the ball. And so I understand why the manager would say, look, let's not play out from the bat, let's go long. And I also understand why Anana, you know, as a, a guy who's come through at Ajax, is like, well, actually, you know, there's, there's reason why you play out from the back, etc. So that was quite a big uh, storyline. And then, obviously, regardless of that, it, it, it produced maybe the maddest game of the group stage. I mean, it was just back and forth. I mean, how Cameroon took the lead when they were being absolutely pummeled by Serbia in the first half, I don't know. I then thought, you know, Serbia played really well, scored a couple of, well, particularly the third goal was excellent, rounded off by Mitrovic. But then, and I don't usually attribute football results to this kind of thing, but I just thought they got massively complacent, Serbia. They, they almost, they thought the game was won, and I must admit, mm. I thought the game was won. Um, my colleague Matt Slater was trying to go to all, or did go to all four games in a day. He left at 3 1 because he was like, well, I need to beat the next match. This is game over. And he missed an extraordinary comeback with. Two pretty near identical goals, courtesy of a, the worst offside trap you'll ever see from Serbia. I mean, how often do you see a side that's 3-1 up can see goals because of like an offside line going wrong? You usually think that's a side that's chasing the game, not a side that's 3-1 up. I thought it was extraordinary. And by the end, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed what I was watching, but I just thought neither of you deserve the three points here. You've made too many defensive errors. I thought what was fascinating was that I think it's the second Serbia goal comes from um, the goalkeeper playing long and they, they I think they win the first contact and I can't remember who the co-commentator was. Uh, it might have been Andros Townsend on the UK broadcast that um, I was watching and, and they were discussing it at this point and then he pointed out that they'd lost it um, and obviously Serbia then attacked quickly. I think it was a goal from outside the box but um, still it's you know very much an outcome bias and that we've only really noticed that because we're aware of it and then it's led to a goal but uh, I think it's um, yeah d- d- definitely an interesting thing to highlight. I think Michael makes a good point about the the lack of quality maybe in building out from the back. Um, but maybe Andre Nana has read Tom Warville's um, article about how actually short goal kicks actually lead to greater ball progression within a possession compared with long goal kicks. And maybe Nana had the data in front of him and uh, mm-hmm. Rigoberto Song was just having absolutely none of it. We're going to move on to more miscellaneous uh, trends that we've found so far. I want to talk about shots from outside the box. Um, again, I ran the numbers and found that just below 38% of the shots so far in this tournament have been from outside the box. Uh, in the previous three tournaments, it's been well above 40% across the whole tournament. And of course, we're not finished yet. Um, only six of the 81 goals have been scored outside the box so far. Liam, are, I mean, I want this to be true. Are the expected goals gods having an effect here? I don't tell you no. I don't want to ruin your day. Um, <laughs> I think it just ties into what we mentioned before, and that's uh, a symptom or a repercussion of sort of the, the difference in terms of styles that teams generally are, are shooting less. Uh, and I think that generally when you shoot less that's also because you're then trying to work the ball into sort of better areas um, or generally your build-up play is worse and that you're just getting into less good positions uh, I don't think we had a goal from outside the box in the first round of fixtures either the first I can remember was um, in the Iran game um, against Wales so that's 
Um, again, maybe teams being very sort of cautious, not wanting to lose possession. But then I, I also see shots from distance, particularly when you're winning, as sometimes a good defensive tool. That the absolute worst case is you've you've boomed the ball over uh, the bar for sort of a goal kick, and other teams then have to build up again. So, um, but now that we're starting to see that slowly creep up um, I'll be intrigued to sort of compare that number to uh, the end of the group stage or sort of further through the tournament uh, and, and see where we're at I looked at set plays as well set pieces which we've spoken about before as a massive part of international tournament football and again it's early on but I looked at set plays per goal so obviously the fewer set plays per goal the uh, the better people are in terms of scoring from set plays and this year, so far, it's 50.6 set plays per goal. And in Russia, 2018, it was 19. Uh, 2014 in Brazil, 30. And 2010 in South Africa, 27. So it shows just how few set pieces are being scored. I don't know whether that is maybe poor attacking play or more of a shift towards uh, greater defensive awareness. If I think, Michael, you've mentioned it before. If ever you're going to be able to control things when you're coming into a tournament off the back of club football so quickly, is it the case that set plays are the things that you could maybe lock down more easy than than open play? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there was a lot of set-piece uh, set goals at the last tournament, and I think that was influenced by the fact that pe- uh, teams were very wary of VAR in a defensive sense because remember that came in before we had it in the Premier League it felt like any kind of you know shirt pulls or anything by a defender was penalised at that tournament whereas block offs by attacking sides not so much so I think there was maybe something to do with that at the last World Cup but um, yeah you're right it's down massively this year it's quite noticeable actually I mean that's the funny thing about the Cameroon um, Serbia game obviously there were four subsequent goals but the first two goals came from set pieces and it was almost like felt quite novel at this tournament, whereas I'm sure at previous tournaments it would happen quite regularly. Um, I asked you guys last time which games you're looking forward to the most. Um, Michael, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, which fixtures have caught your eye to, to look forward to? I didn't expect to be saying this, but I'm quite looking forward to Australia against Denmark because it's kind of a, a playoff to go through. Um, I quite enjoyed it. was that Australia's win the other day and actually really enjoyed their performance. It was, it was quite backs to the wall defending at times, but I thought they did it brilliantly. And I just, I'm intrigued how Denmark go about trying to break them down, especially with the aforementioned, you know, striker issue. I don't really know how they should play it. I feel like they want a proper number nine because they're going to have a lot of possession. But I also feel like if they play too much to that number nine strength, Australia will be delighted with that. So I think it could be really interesting tactically. And I mean, two sides who... Very different in style. Denmark, very slick. I, lo- I love what they do positionally. It varies between opponents, uh, between games, depending upon the opponent, but they're always trying to get players in clever positions between the lines, whereas Australia quite, I think, quite a simple side, if we're being honest, that they don't have a great ge- uh, generation of talent at the moment, whereas Denmark clearly do. Um, but of course, all the all the pressure, all the onus is on Denmark because they've got a win to go through, whereas Australia... Um, would be delighted with a goalless draw. So I think that could be maybe the most interesting game. Nice. Liam's eyes lit up <laughs> as you made that answer. Uh, Liam, who have you got circled in your in your diary? I'm particularly looking forward to Ecuador uh, against Senegal. I think that's a really good sort of, again, another battle for second place. I think Ecuador have been, I know the first game against Qatar maybe wasn't a, a great level of opposition, but they were phenomenal against the Netherlands, um, restricted them to just two shots, which was, I think, a, re- a record low for a European team. Um 
since the 66 World Cup. Um, a really well-balanced team, um, a good young core. Obviously, I enjoy watching three Brighton players there in particular do very well, but I think they're a really nice, um, well-rounded team. Uh, and of course, uh, Ghana against Uruguay didn't really need any um, added sort <laughs> of narrative to it. And I, I think one of the most interesting parts about um, that group in particular is that it maybe feels like the least complex uh, group in terms of how teams play tactically, which is, you know, with, with no real offence to teams. But um, Ghana have got a manager who's, you know, effectively sort of part-time. They've bringing through um, a, a new generation now of um, players that have switched allegiance or just become available for the national team. Um, and speaking to Karl Anker before the tournament, he wasn't too optimistic about their chances, but they've looked really good. Um, they've looked really exciting and ultimately they've come up in big moments um, and that could just you know go down as one of the all-time World Cup games now. As I know they don't need to win it, but um, that's, that's going to be a great spectacle. Yeah, I do agree. I'm also looking forward to the United States against Iran. It's a knockout game in the sense that it's all or nothing. It looks like whoever comes out on top in that game will be the ones to go through. Um, well, there we have it. Chapter two in the World Cup notebook is complete. Uh, thank you to Michael and Liam for their time and fantastic insight as ever. To get all the fantastic World Cup coverage that every single one of the team at The Athletic are working so hard on at the moment, then you know what to do. Subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. There's no better time to join if you haven't. The variety of content on site at the moment, especially, uh, is unbelievable. So do check it out. Uh, but that's all from us. We'll be back again when all of the group games are complete. You'll be hearing from us very soon. But in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, everybody. And thank you, as ever, for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.